Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this weekly episode of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. And as always, uh, I start my podcast off with a quote. And this one I had to actually think a little bit about because my guest today, attorney Mickey Ostriker, you know, he's he's a legal scholar. So the good part about that is he's going to he's going to take everything I say and, and evaluate it very detailed. So I went with a Thomas Jefferson quote that said, the only security of all is a is in a free press. The force of public opinion cannot be resisted when permitted freely to be expressed. The agitation it produces must be submitted to. It is necessary to keep the waters pure. How's that, Mickey? I, I love it. Um, I know there's probably a lot of guys out there that don't like being agitated, but uh, that's what this conversation is going to be all about. Yeah, so I'm honored to have uh, attorney Mickey Ostriker with me. And Mickey and I, um, we'll go a little bit over our history, but um, Mickey has, and I have been doing training together, um, and I considered him one of the best in the industry, specifically in his field. And as you all know that are listening to the podcast, I try to find the best to give you the best advice because that makes you a better officer as it goes along. Uh, Mickey just was at our use of force summit and was able to talk about press relations. And we're actually getting ready for our first amendment summit, which will be in June and where Mickey will also have a, a key, uh, key part of being the relationship with, uh, the press. So let me just give a little bit about Mickey and then I'm going to ask him to fill in the in between, but his overall job, he serves as the general counsel for the National Press Photographers Association, and um, he is an award-winning photojournalist with over 40 years of experience in both print and broadcast. But what also, what you know in, in the podcast here is I also like to find people that are in touch with law enforcement. And, and one of the things uh, that us old guys have in common is that we've been around for a while, and he's been a uniform reserve deputy sheriff with the Erie County Sheriff's Office since 1976. Um, Mickey and I first met, um, I believe it was 2016, right, Mickey, in the IACP public recording? It, I think it was even earlier than that. It might have been probably. 14, but it around all, there. It all, it, all blur, it all blurs together. That's yeah. true. Uh, we first met at the International Chiefs of Police put together a police advisory committee on the public recording of police. And we were uh, partners in a group that helped draft some manuals and provide some training on the issues of recording police, which we're going to get into today. Um, listen, you know, everybody that comes in here, they have a long history of experience and training and, and knowledge of that. And so, and so Mickey, uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to just say hi to the group, kind of give them an overview of your experience. If there's something I didn't touch on that you'd like to, like to focus on. And, uh, and most of all, I thank you and welcome you, uh, onto the podcast and thanks for the time. No, thank you so much for having me. So uh, I, I think you pretty much, uh, you know, talked about, uh, most of the things that are, that are pertinent. Um, NPPA has been around since 1946. We're the voice of visual journalists and, and pretty much our members are all across the country and they're both still, uh, photographers and video, uh, videographers, uh, they're editors and students. Um, and they're, they're the ones that, uh, also, uh, in some ways, when I talk about this, uh, journalists and, and police have a whole lot more in common than I think uh, most people think about at first blush, because when bad things are happening and most people are going in the opposite direction, law enforcement, first responders, public safety are going towards it. And the other people that are going towards it are usually journalists, I, I think sometimes to the chagrin 
uh, <laughs> of, of first responders, but the, but the fact is that they do that. And, and, you know, the other things that I think are similarities is we both get severely criticized for doing our jobs. And, and then probably the third component is uh, just like uh, Eric's been dealing with and so many uh, in law enforcement have been dealing with recruitment and retention. Uh, you know, we've seen a huge shift in, um, in, in media companies where they're not employing people, where there are a whole lot of newspapers uh, going out of business and, uh, and, and local news is, is a rarity and more and more people that are out there on the streets are uh, either freelancers or, um, you know, they're, they're, they don't have the same background support and training um, that, that they did at one time when you worked in a newsroom. So I think there's a lot of similarities um, and, and, and those, you know, relate to some of the, uh, the issues we, we, uh, we have to deal with at hand. So what would you like, how would you explain to the listener and listeners what your daily job is for, um, you know, for MPPA and how you, what does that entail on a daily basis? So, um, the, the issues I mostly deal with are access, the first amendment, right. To photograph and record, um, you know, that's a, a huge part of my day. Uh, another thing is the use of drones for news gathering, which I think of as another extension of the right to record. I mean, Eric always hears me talk about reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions and, and public traditional public forums. Um, but airspace uh, is yet to be decided from the court where that traditional public forum will apply in terms of where it starts at the ground and how, how high up it goes. I mean, the FAA talks about that they control the national airspace from the blade of grass up to the heavens. But, uh, you know, there are other people that say, well, wait a minute, when there's certain property um, and there's a drone in that area, uh, is, is that, you know, an invasion of privacy. So all of those property rights are going to come into play. And then really the other third thing that, that I deal with, um, is while photographers are risking their health and safety, you know, covering COVID and covering all these protests. Uh, the fact is that far too many people look at the internet as the public domain and the public domain is a legal term of art. Uh, which basically means something is out of outside of copyright protection. Unfortunately, a lot of people look at the internet as the public domain, as in, if I find anything there, I can use it, whether it's a picture or an article or whatever. And, um, and, and that's the problem for photographers that everybody thinks they can take their images and use them and, and without being able to license those images and, and uh, earn a living. And there's not going to be a whole lot of photojournalists around anymore. So those are the things that I deal with, um, you know, on a daily basis, though, I would say for the most part, uh, especially these last, you know, year and a half, two years dealing with the COVID and protests and things like that, it's been more the right, the right to record. And, um, I just kind of look at that as, uh, as a, as a three prong goal that I have in mind, uh, I first started doing this, talking to journalists and telling them what their rights are. But I soon came to realize that a, a journalist saying, I know my rights is oftentimes the last sentence they utter before <laughs> hearing, turn around, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. If they even get, uh, even if they get the chance to hear that. 
Uh, and so uh, back again, uh, probably more around 2010 or so, uh, the board at the NPPA uh, asked me if I would think about trying to do some training with police officers, because I thought that that was really important in that, in the fact that what we saw after the 2008 Democratic and Republican national conventions uh, in Denver and then in St. Paul is a lot of journalists were arrested trying to cover things this is back in the day of Occupy Wall Street. And those cities faced um, civil rights lawsuits that cost taxpayers $100,000 and $200,000 respectively. I can't remember which city was which. Um, but we keep seeing those um, uh, those uh, 1983 actions, and, and if Eric wants to talk about that more in detail, I'm using the shorthand, but, um, you know, costing taxpayers so much money that could be much better spent on, on hiring officers, on getting equipment, on doing all of those things. And so really it became my goal um, to really make it so that police officers and police departments weren't sued, so that journalists could do their job but really most importantly, so the public could be informed. I mean, when I talk about the first amendment, that's really what it's all about. Even though it says freedom of speech and freedom of the press, it's that first amendment was created um, by folks like Thomas Jefferson so that the public would have the right to receive the information. And in order to do that, it protected the right of journalists um, to gather that information and that's really what it comes down to yeah and and you actually hit on one of my next questions which is like you almost have my question list there which is you know i was interested in you know i didn't even know the answer to this question is when you started the crossover between the two and and you know here at dlg our philosophy is knowledge is power and we try to do as much as we can to increase the knowledge and and that's kind of the reason why um you know you were one of the the leading individuals to show me some of the failures in the First Amendment application. And then, you know, we added that with Eric Astapenis and social media and, and some of these issues. So the crossover between the two, um, have you have you have you found that to be successful in the application of being able to share the knowledge um, um, with both sides, both the press and the police? I have. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think every time I, I've taught and I've done this now around the country uh, through DLG, uh, we have a grant through the Knight Foundation. So I've been doing that. I just did it most recently uh, with the Minnesota State Patrol, who had um, you know significant challenges as, as that was kind of the epicenter for the George Floyd protests. Um, but it's still still amazes me when I just did your most recent class at the use of force summit. The, one of the first questions I ask is, okay, who here uh, has a policy dealing with this? And almost nobody raises their hands. Um, and the, you know, I ask another question and the last question is who here has dealt with, um, you know, either themselves personally or some other officer in the department being photographed and recorded and having that become an issue. And almost everybody raises their hand. And as you, uh, you know, spend so much time talking about policies and training and where are we going to go without policies and training? It's like training, training, training. You can't have training without the policies. And yet it still surprises me uh, how many departments do not 
have those policies when they're readily available, you know, through either IACP has a model policy. There are a number of them out there. It's not like somebody has to sit there and recreate the, the, the wheel. All you have to do right. is look online and, you know, change, you know, your department's name here and yeah. insert it. And when, you, when you're talking about policy, just to make sure that so people are not, it's just not in a vacuum. Um, specifically, we're talking about the recording police policy, right? Which would be dealing with not only the recording police issues, which we'll get into and the sharp decision, uh, the seizure of electronics issue. That's, that's what you're referring to that policy. Absolutely. Okay. You know, in terms of, and, and, and some general, I think police press policies is how you deal with them. I mean, obviously I'm focused on, on, on that issue, but you, you need to have a policy in terms of who gets to talk to the media. It can't, it, and, and I don't think it should be a free-for-all. I think most <laughs> departments want, that have a PIO, it's that person or it's the chief. I mean, you want to be speaking with one voice. So there's all of those policies that are so important. But the ones we're going to talk about here certainly are uh, the, the right to record, uh, exigent circumstances in terms of when uh, uh, you could seize uh, uh, that device, when you could look at that device, uh, those kinds of things are, are critical in, in terms of trying to avoid uh, being sued for violating someone's civil rights. Okay. So, um, you know, when I always have somebody with your level of expertise and I get the officer's attention for a little bit, I, I always like to share some knowledge basis on that. So, you know, if I was to ask you a question very general, like what does a law enforcement officer need to know about how the press has developed over the last decade? Because, you know, we all were we all were raised with knowing that the press was the guy or the gal with the with the press and the side of his hat. And uh, and that was a clearly identical. But just like our industry and the law enforcement side has developed um, I'm sure the press has developed and, and, and I'm sure our listeners would be interested in hearing, you know, what has, what has changed over the last decade. Uh, what's changed is, is, uh, really significant. Uh, back in the day when I was out on the street, uh, you know, clearly if I was running around with three Nikons around my neck. Uh, and nobody else had a camera. Was he say, ah, that's the press guy. Or when I had a big baby cam on my shoulder, I was shooting for television. Ah, that's the press guy. But that's that's it's not so easy anymore. And that is the probably the greatest challenge here. And it's the question that comes up all the time in training: is who is a journalist? All right, uh, so that's a great question. I'm going to ask you: you know, who is and, a, who and, is the press today? And I wish that I could. I wish that I could have this right line definitive answer uh but i'm going to give you more the loyally it depends okay uh, and and that's and that is not helpful when you're out in the middle of a huge protest and you're trying to figure out you move you got a moving line trying to clear the street you're trying to maintain order um or or or, or get control back from having lost sections of the city and then try to figure out who gets to stay, who doesn't get to stay. Um, I can talk about a whole lot of what we've seen most recently and the developments that we're seeing. So we, people, I think, can get a sense of which way the wind is blowing. And it's, uh, you know, that you may not like the answer, but the blowing is that more people are going to be allowed 
to have that those protections as journalists than less. Uh, and we just saw this happen in, in Los Angeles in particular. Um, uh, so California passed a bill that the governor had actually vetoed the year before. Uh, the year before it was called SB 629. Now this year it, it was SB 98. And it basically creates a new a part of the penal code in California. I believe it's um, 409.7. And prior to that, uh, there had been a number of cases, but one in particular, which at the end of the day, without going into all the detail, allowed journalists to cross police and fire lines when there was uh, you know, a forest fire, when there was an earthquake, right, when there right. was an area that they had generally closed off to some that because of some natural disaster. And there was an assumption of the risk, like right. nobody's allowed to go past this point. Hi, I'm with the press. All right, you get to go, but you assume the risk. If you get stuck, if you get trapped by the fire, we ain't coming to rescue you. You want to go knock yourself out. But there had always been this debate between does that include you know, civil unrest? Does that include crime scenes? Does it, that include other things? And the answer by the police was always no. And that just got more recently clarified, as I said, from SB 98, which talks about um, that, that journalists do not have to disperse of when there's a, 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 an, order, an order given of that there's been an, an unlawful uh, assembly. There's a presumption, as we've seen with curfews, especially uh, during COVID, uh, almost every state where the executive order created uh, some type of curfew, there's an exemption in there for press as being essential personnel. Unfortunately, we saw time and time again in cities around the country where that fact never got passed along to the guys and gals out on the street. You know, it's like, look, if they're pressed, they don't have to, the, the eight o'clock curfew doesn't apply to them. Or, hey, it's an, we saw in, in, uh, in Minnesota, we declared unlawful assembly. And that basically means that if you have, you're not here for any lawful purpose, you have to disperse. And the courts took an analysis and said, wait a minute, they're out there exercising their First Amendment right. If there's, there's no greater lawful purpose than that, therefore, that dispersal order does not apply to that. And now they've put that uh, in writing, and now it's for everybody to figure out, back to your original question, who gets that privilege? Right. Who, who, gets, who is the they, price, right? Who gets exempted? And as I said, that's the real challenge now because so many people, everybody looks alike. Um, you know, young reporters are sent out there, uh, take your iPhone, shoot some images. And this is from the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post. It's not like just, you know, the, the Daily Gazette from Spokane, you know, or someplace. It's, it's everyone. So they look like the same people who are out there protesting, also holding their cell phone cameras. Right. We've seen, unfortunately, because a lot of the protesters have come to realize, and, and we're talking about the ones that wish to make mischief, that wish to create a turmoil, that wish to break the law, they've been starting to put, hey, put press across my, my vest or my shirt or wear a helmet that says press 
or make up a credential that says media or press. And now officers are faced with, okay, now how do I figure it out? Compounding that, the, the real press, for however you want to classify them, <laughs> who often have, you know, press credentials from LAPD or NYPD, they're sticking those credentials inside their shirts and jackets because they're getting attacked by the protesters who don't want to be photographed and recorded. And, and, and whereas for me, initially it was officers saying to people, you don't have permission to take my picture and not understanding that when you're out in a public place and there's no reasonable expectation of privacy, you can't tell a citizen that you can say, sir, ma'am, I need you to step back. If you're worried about weapon retention, I need you to step out of the street and stand on the sidewalk. I don't want you to get hit by a car. If you can come up with those reasonable time, place and manner, those are the exceptions, but turn off the damn camera and disappear off the face of the earth is not a reasonable time, place and manner. But what's happening with the, the protesters, you know, wearing these things and journalists hiding their credentials, it makes it so much um, tougher uh, on law enforcement to figure out, okay, who's who, how do we decide? And, um, you know, we've, we've seen again in Minnesota where, you know, I was hearing crazy stories where after the judge ruled in this case called Goyette, um, that the police had to allow journalists to do everything they're telling me like I, I had literally we, we were on a line and there were pe there were people with cameras like trying to crawl between my legs to, you know, to take an interesting picture. Yeah, and probably I probably can't go well. No, it doesn't go well. And they're all looking at, at each other. They're looking at each other on the line going, well, well, what do we do? And, you know, I said, you tell them, sir, ma'am, you can take all the pictures you want, but I can't have you down between my legs shooting that nice picture now. You know, when I was out on the street, I would go up if there was a line of officers and I thought, well, this looks like a really neat shot. I mean, I mean, I remember actually there was a shot from the Attica uh, riots yep. uh, where a photographer got down low and was and, and shot and, and, and an officer was holding his hat and that literally the whole top of his hat had been ripped out. He kind of shot that and the, the yard was in the back. I mean, it was creative, but, you know, use some common sense. Hi. I'm with so-and-so, I see a really, I'm going to be kneeling down behind, I'm only going to be here for a second or two, is that okay? It's not like you're asking permission, like if you said no, you know, well, okay, but you know, use some common sense. You, you can't, and I tell this to journalists, and that's the one thing that I really stress a lot is when I do the training with journalists, when I do the training with law enforcement, I don't tell, you know, one side, one thing and another. I, I, the training is exactly the same for both groups of people and um communication I, that's the key a, 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 absolutely right. and, so you know go ahead the, let's let's break this down a little bit and that's the key is because for the most officers you know we did when we did the webinar um for your people uh for your side over the summer i think we did a great job of of analyzing some of the issues and and so let's start with an understanding of the press today, and, and, and you and I both know because of the policy work that we did, uh, the Glick decision, and, and how the Glick decision um, basically said that everybody with a camera could be the press. And that was kind of, would you agree that that was kind of the starting point to the recording police legal threshold? Yeah, I mean, there had been other cases before. 
Um, but but Glick is certainly the seminal case. And, and really what they said is the right of the press and the public to photograph and record police performing their official duties in a public place is coextensive. That's the term that they used. Okay. So there may be times that the press has a greater right than the public, as we said, if they don't have to disperse, if they can stay past curfew. But when you're in a traditional public forum, the rights of the press and the public are the same. And I'm often talking about the press may not have any greater right than the public, but they certainly have no less right. We've seen oftentimes where perimeter tape is put up, the public are there standing with their cell phones, and then they're like, oh, you guys, are you with the press? There's a press pen about two blocks away. You need to go stand in there. Now, the a press pen being set up for the convenience of the press is one thing. A press pen being set up where that's the only place that the press can operate, that becomes a problem okay. um, for the, the officers and, and the, the department. So then, so then if everybody, if under the law, and, and I think, uh, make sure I'm accurate, I think there's 11 circuits that have ratified click to point that there's a first amendment right in being able to record the police. Is that accurate? So it's not 11 circuits. It's all the odd numbered circuit. Okay. The first, the third, the fifth, the seventh, the ninth, and the 11th circuit. They have all said that the right to record police is clearly established. And then the important part of that clearly established language as, as Eric obviously knows, but for folks that may not be that familiar is, so you bring this civil rights, federal civil rights lawsuit under 42 United States Code Section 1983. And us lawyers, just the shorthand is a 1983 action. It's not the year, it's not anything, it's the <laughs> section. It's the section of the United States Code. And then what the court does is they do an analysis. And well, even before they do the analysis, so you bring the 1983 action, Officers assert qualified immunity, and then the court does this analysis. The first part of it is, was there a constitutional right? So is it the First Amendment, a Fourth Amendment, or whatever? In this case, a First Amendment right. So if the answer to that is yes, there was a First Amendment right, then they go on to the next question, which is, was that right clearly established at the time of the incident? so that any reasonable police officer would have known that they were violating that right by doing whatever it was they're accused of doing. And if the answer is yes, then qualified immunity goes away in most cases. And so let's, so, be, let's be clear on that though, Mickey. Uh, one thing is, is that as you sit here today, we all agree that this is clearly established law of recording police and therefore I don't even think that they need to know right off the bat that they're they're going to have a very uphill, if not an impossible challenge on the qualified immunity side. Would you agree? I, I would have to say, unfortunately, yes and no. I'm not, and right. I'm not trying to the be lawyer answer, the problem. I get it. No, it's not the lawyer <laughs> answer, but I'll give you the example. So in the 10th Circuit, uh, there was a case called Frazier v. Evans. Didn't involve a journalist, Mr. Frazier. Uh, uh, went out there and uh, he was photographing some officers uh, making a drug arrest. And um, he recorded them. They ended up retaliating against him, at least he claimed that, for recording them. And he brought the 1983 action. And um, so, so at the federal trial court level, uh, 
he also brought another claim called a Manel claim, a, a, a failure to train and supervise. And this was against the department itself, the Denver police, as a matter of fact. So during the different uh, procedures and depositions, um, the, the, the court basically said, you know what? In the Tenth Circuit, the right to record is not clearly established. Therefore, the officers get qualified immunity. Okay, we're done with that part. Then they went on to the Manel claim, at which point all the officers that testified at their deposition said, we know, we have a policy. We're absolutely trained really well about the right to record and that citizens and journalists have that right. And the judge said, wait a minute, time out. I just gave you a qualified immunity. <laughs> now you're telling me you have actual knowledge that they have that right. No, I'm bringing the, I'm bringing, I'm getting rid of the qualified immunity. I'm bringing that back in. And the Denver police appealed to the 10th circuit. And we thought, okay, here's an opportunity because we've seen this in a couple of other circuits where they said at the time of the incident, the right wasn't clearly established. So the officers get qualified immunity, but henceforth and going forward, the right is now clearly established in that circuit and officers need to be on notice of that. We thought, okay, 10th circuit, maybe we'll get the first even numbered circuit to say yes. Right. And what they ended up saying is, nope, if the Supreme Court hasn't said the right's clearly established and we as the judicial body of this circuit haven't said the right is clearly established, we could care less what the officers actually know. I mean, it kind of makes your head want to explode, yeah. but... That's basically what they said. Okay. And so that case got appealed. Uh, there was a, a, a petition for cert to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court refused to hear it. So where, what we've got is all odd-numbered circuits, rights clearly established, even-numbered circuits, uh, good luck. You know, yeah. you're taking your chances. You might be the case that gets you in the even-numbered circuit ruling. Um, you, you know, you'll probably get away with it as the right wasn't clearly established at the time of the incident, but going forward, it will be, but that now you can see why I didn't give you that. Yeah, Eric, you're right. I, I had to give you that kind of convoluted no, answer of this is where we're going with things. And so most of the time in the policy that we developed with IACP when you and I worked on and what we use here at DLG policy center, as you said it correctly before, and just wanted to clarify to those listening that the issue on the table is that they have the right to record, um, but they don't have the right to interfere. And the problem that I have a lot of times, and I'll give you a second to chat about it, is that if uh, that I, I, I need that word interference interpreted and defined in the policy because I don't want officers making up their own definition of interfering. It's gotta be, it's gotta be a solid definition of interfering. Usually in my recommendation, we directly correlate with the state statute, the, uh, the criminal statute for interfering as, a, as analysis. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, as the Glick court said, just because an officer is annoyed, uh, you know, about the fact that somebody's there with a camera, that doesn't constitute interference. Oftentimes I suggest in policies that it says unduly interferes or materially interferes or substantially interferes or some kind of qualifier not just, all right, you're there. And because I'm looking at you and you're, you know, a distraction to me because you've got a camera and I'm trying to keep an eye on you and therefore you're interfering that, that doesn't work. And, and, uh, you know, a good rule of thumb is if a person were in a place where they had a legal right to be present, 
whether it's in a public park or a sidewalk or on private property with permission of, of the owner. If they were there and had that, would you allow them to stay there and forget about the camera? Right. You know, the, the camera should not make a difference if they if you need them to step back, to move and, you know, again, weapon retention, I can't have you standing close enough to reach any of, you know, the equipment on my belt or to reach me. You can certainly ask them to step back. Uh, if they're yelling and shouting and carrying on and telling the person you're trying to talk to, you don't have to answer his questions. You know, he can't, I mean, again, you need to go through the, sir, ma'am, I, I, I need, I, I'm conducting some work here. You need to be quiet. That has nothing to do again with the right to record just because they're trying to get a reaction from you on, on camera. And I think almost every policy will also say at some point when you think the line has been crossed and then uh, just you need to, you know, to take some action, almost every policy says, get a supervisor, get somebody who's not at the scene who maybe can look at this a little bit more dispassionately than the he said, she said that's been going on at the scene and then decide whether or not, you know, yes, this is a, a proper arrest. But we've also seen, and I know you were alluding to it with the, the Sharp case, but even, you know, the next one. So, so Sharp was a case uh, in, involving the city of Baltimore where they took somebody's uh, camera after he had recorded them arresting his friend and he, he didn't give it up voluntarily. They seized it from him. And when they gave it back to him, they had erased everything on his phone, not just what he recorded, but you right. know, his family pictures and his contacts and his cat. And, and, and basically the United States department of justice entered the statement of interest in that case, saying to the court that the right to record really is something that's very important. They went on to enter a second statement of interest in another case, um, uh, Garcia versus Montgomery County police, where it really cautions the court against, um, you know, using those discretionary, what I call catch and release charges of disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace, trespass, uh, loitering, you know, all of those things that have a whole lot of officer discretion. Right, Oftentimes right. what we see in these arrests of somebody with a camera is they make the arrest and then they're sitting there going through the penal code going, all right, now what do we charge them with? <laughs> and, 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 you know, uh, again, you really need to be able to articulate um, exactly what it was that that person was doing above and beyond the fact that they had a camera in their hand that caused you to take some type of law enforcement action against them. And if, if you do, and you can do that, you're pretty much on solid grounds. But if you're just, um, you know, retaliating and being pissed off or annoyed, um, it, it's, it's unfortunate. And I tell journalists all the time, if you're out on the street and an officer tells you to do whatever it is, no matter how unreasonable, uh, if you don't comply, you're most likely going to lose the argument on the street because they have that authority. What happens later is, as we've seen, and that's exactly what we're talking about, it ends up costing taxpayers a whole lot of money when officers make a, a mistake or get so aggravated and annoyed and then take action when they really shouldn't have and they should have just you know, ignored the situation because the flip side of that is when you're out 
performing your official duties and you're doing it according to your department policy, you're following every rule and regulation, you're acting professional, you're not using excessive force, you're not, you aren't like the model officer, wouldn't you want, like, as they say in sports, let's go to the videotape. Wouldn't you want as much cameras from every different angle that showed me doing what I was supposed to, which really is the basis for body-worn cameras. Um, And it's, you know, when you think about it, it goes back to that. The whole idea of no reasonable expectation of privacy in a public place is what allows officers to wear body-worn cameras allows dash cam, allows all those surveillance cameras that are up on, you know, almost every street post inside a building. And it also allows citizens and journalists to photograph things that are out in a public place. I mean, it, 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 the rule applies to everybody. The one thing that I wanted to say from before, and the thing that's kind of making me um, crazy is that if you read the, the, the constitution and you read the first amendment, the First Amendment starts off, Congress shall make no law abridging. And then it goes into freedom of speech and the press and religion and right to assemble. And what Congress shall make no law has been interpreted to mean is any state actor. Right. So anytime, you know, somebody under color of law, and it's usually a law enforcement officer takes that action, that's how there's a constitutional violation. The problem is, as we've seen from protesters, who go after uh, journalists or anybody with a camera is they're not a state actor. And that's, you know, just pure assault. And then trying to get them to stop doing it. It's not like so much you can then go to court and file a federal civil rights lawsuit. The sad part of it is, is that they're exercising their first amendment rights to assemble and for redress of grievances and to protest but have no respect for the right of the press or citizens to be photographing and recording, exercising their First Amendment rights. But what they've done by assaulting, um, you know, damaging equipment, all of those things is still not a First Amendment violation because the First Amendment doesn't apply to them. They're not state actors. Well, that seems like you got a lot of legal work ahead of you. That's for sure. Um, the key that, uh, so as you can see, is everybody listening as we wrap this up, I just want to, obviously there's a lot going on here in the First Amendment and we've done a lot of podcasts and I'm sure we're going to do more with Mickey and others on the First Amendment issues, which is why we have the First Amendment Summit and there's, there's, a, and there's a lot of things that are still being developed, which is the difficult part. And, and so as we sit here and talk about, well, we don't have the right answer, we can't like in the fourth amendment and there's a lot of things that we can tell you you can do and you can't do and we are very clear but but one of the things i want uh, all the officers to understand is that the first amendment is truly still being developed as it applies to the interaction with law enforcement and the press and i know that it's frustrating to all of you and it's a frustrating even as mickey explained it's frustrating to the press and it's frustrating to him as the intermediary between the two and so i think one of the great questions that would that would bring this to a wrap up is having spent so many years on both sides and understanding both sides, which is always a unique uh, ability, what are the key things that you would give as recommendations to the officers that are listening to this, this podcast as they deal with press going forward, whether it's going to be um, the clear Fox News, CNN at a protest, whether it's uh, Joe Citizen recording their arrest and even 
you know, we've seen a large increase of First Amendment auditors and people that want to just come out and, and videotape uh, government, sometimes even to annoy them. But the key is, is if you had that one chance, you know, and I know it's not a clear, easy answer, but what would be your advice that you give in training on, uh, to law enforcement about their interactions with the press? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that is a cardinal rule for, for everyone is that you treat every weapon as if it were loaded. I mean, they, they, there's no debating that. It's right. no matter where you are. And so uh, I would, you know, kind of do this uh, a corollary to that in that treat every camera as if it's recording. Whether And, and we all know that every, pretty much every cell phone's got a camera in it. And again, whether that person is recording or not recording, uh, if you have a reason to be able to articulate what it is you'd like them to do, and you know, again, those t reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions can't—they, they, they, there's other caveats attached. They must be content neutral. You can't decide. Oh, I really like what this guy's shooting. Oh, I'll let him go. Oh, no, I don't like. I, no, I don't like the images he's getting over there. No, you can't record. They have to be content neutral. Um, they have to, you know, the the restriction you're imposing uh, has got to serve a significant governmental interest, public safety. It's got to be narrowly tailored. It can't be, you know, everybody clear out of here. We don't want you here. So, uh, I think if you're looking at people with cameras. If you can articulate what it is you want them to do or not do, and it's reasonable time, place, manner, certainly articulate that. Um, but if you see people with cameras, and we we didn't even touch on the First Amendment auditors, which I know drop. We'll have to come uh, back for so, that. So, so, <laughs> right. But, but the point is, there's a huge difference between people who are out there trying to record matters of public concern, such as you know, a COVID-19 protest, mask protests, um, BLM protests, and others who just show up at a station and are standing out there with their camera, hoping that somebody's going to take the bait and come out. Well, how come you're out here? Why are you out here? Or you can't do this. I mean, they, you know, that, that would be the rule is you see somebody with a camera. It's like, if they, they can be where they're supposed to be, just ignore the fact that they have a camera and let them alone. And I think that will hold you in good stead. It probably, you know, is counterintuitive sometimes, but if you want to stay out of trouble, uh, just assume, you know, the camera's recording and unless there's some reason other than the camera to deal with that person, don't. Yeah. And I think you said it right. And, you know, we talked about it, you know, and I gave a webinar with you to, um, to the press. And one of the things that we all agree on and you both, you and I, is that communication is key, you know, um, yeah, treat people with respect and, you know, try communication first. If you need them to step back for a real easy, a reason, then ask them to, uh, discuss it with them. You know, you know, that, that's the key. We've seen, uh, we've seen a lot of issues where, uh, the press have been, um, had weapons used against them or taken into custody and that, and, and, you know, you're, if that does occur, you're going to meet Mickey or someone just like Mickey, and they're going to, they're going to ask you some pretty tough questions in depositions. You need to, you need to be aware of that. Right, Mickey? Uh, no, a a absolutely. And it's, it, it's not easy to have that conversation when everything is happening at once. And so I'm constantly urging journalists to reach out to their police agencies 
to have conversations about, hey, this is what we'd like to do. What are your expectations? And have those beforehand set up those kinds of procedures, who to call, who to be in contact with. It's not the time, you know, when things are the worst they can be to have that discussion on the street. Uh, it, it's, it's never going to work. So I encourage uh, police agencies to reach out uh, to their local media, as just as I do local media to reach out to their police agencies to have these ongoing conversations beforehand and hopefully avoid so many of the unfortunate situations that we see that end up costing everybody a lot of money. Awesome. If there's somebody that's listening to this podcast, Mickey, that's interested in maybe getting some of your training and or getting more information, is there a contact or social media address that, that they can they can reach out to? And, and yeah, it's a, it's a real. I have a real easy email. It's lawyer at NPPA, Nora Paul Paul Adam dot org. Uh, and just send me an email. And uh, as I said, we've got uh, we've got some money, uh, you know, I can't li literally make it my life's calling to train your whole department. If you've got, you know, 4,000 officers and spend a couple of months there, but, uh, I I'm more than happy to, you know, figure out the best way to do that where at least one time, uh, whether we do it remotely or in person. And I prefer in person, cause I think as Eric, you know, and we all know, you know, getting that engagement is so much better when you're doing it in person than when you're doing it remotely. But I'm willing to do whichever way it will work uh, so that, as I said at the beginning, so that officers and departments don't get sued, journalists get to do their job, and the public gets to be informed. Awesome. And I strongly recommend to everybody um, this is the this is the guru. This is the guy that will help you and keep you out of harm's way in that regard. Um, and and uh, Mickey, it's always a joy working with you. Uh, I think we should come back and do one on First Amendment auditors at some point because uh, that is also a hot topic and in uh, and that we should do in the future. Yeah, and talk about exigent circumstances as well, which we unfortunately didn't get to, but I think is, is a good thing to talk about. So always, unfortunately, plenty to talk about, um, but thank you so much for having me. It's, it's always such a pleasure. It's great having, you know, these conversations, Eric and I don't have to have these conversations, have them, you know, any officer, any journalist, you know, you can talk about this stuff. We're all human. Yeah. And before we drop, before we uh, say goodbye to Mickey, Mickey, on behalf of us here at DLG, um, your son who is serving our country as a in the Air Force and as an outstanding uh, pilot, uh, we we wish you to thank him for us on behalf of us for his service to our country. Well, thank you so much. And as, as Eric knows, I I end my talks with that I everything we've been talking about here today is not just some highfalutin idea. It's the very reason uh, that we all swore an oath to uphold the Constitution because so many of you, so many young men and women go in harm's way to protect our way of life. And uh, certainly if we, 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 we need to honor those people uh, as well by upholding these constitutional principles. Well, Mickey, I end every podcast as I start with a quote. In the way that our, our guardian mindset quote is, um, we hope you all are well. Remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.